All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Jason, as always, here with Brian. And if you've been listening to the last couple episodes, we're going to continue this discussion on suffering. And it's not a very attractive title, not a very attractive word. Um, But I would also add, if you haven't listened to the episodes prior to this one on on suffering, I would recommend listening to those because this stuff builds on itself. We've been talking about a lot of concepts in the last couple episodes that we'll be referencing probably in this one, and so it might be a good idea to have that backdrop to it. Um, So again, I think there's two or so episodes that we've been talking about this so far, but um, tonight we're going to go into it a little bit even deeper. We've talked about this question of what is suffering, because everyone's got their own definition of it, but really getting deeper and asking, what is this suffering after? So when there's things that are bringing suffering, when the world is creating all this pressure, what is it actually after? We're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about Job a little bit today too, and um, I hope that we can kind of get past the things we learned in Sunday school about it and start to see a deeper picture and maybe even a glimpse into the journey of a hero, but we're also going to talk about dragons. And so it's going to be an interesting episode. So glad you guys are tuning in. Yeah, Jason, this is going to be a good one. And probably it's really kind of a centerpiece of, we talked about last week of even all religious beliefs. There's something that deals with suffering and it's such a big question. What is it? Um, I had a conversation the other day with a friend of mine who's a counselor and I brought up overcoming and he, he kind of gave me this funny look like, Oh, you're one of those guys. And I thought, well, what are you? The one guy that just thinks life is just suffering. And so you just spend your life, move on, and then there is no suffering. And we started laughing a little bit. But then when we started actually breaking down what the thought process was, we both actually were sharing the same thought process. There is a sense of suffering. But it it should not be the central theme of our life. It is a part of something that you face, a part of something that you experience. But I hope to on this one and on the last couple podcasts that we can better maybe articulate what it is, how does it affect our life, and what's what's it what's it really after, like you were saying. And so I think that intro was great. And I, I think maybe to tie it in, I want to share a quick story. For you for you don't know, uh, Jordan Peterson, he's a psychologist out of um, professor at Toronto. He's written a book, 12 uh, Rules for Life, and really deals with the idea of facing life and growing up. He was sharing something on a podcast about his daughter. So she had this autoimmune disease, and part of it was arthritis, which is, I forgot the name of the one that's the extreme arthritis. So I believe it's by the time she was eight years old, she had to have both of her ankles uh, replay ankle joints replaced. She had a knee joint replaced. He was saying that isn't even the worst of what she had to deal with. So she was on heavy opioids, uh, to deal with the pain. She was, uh, on Ritalin to stay awake. I mean, and, and he was saying it, it was awful. Like it is just a horrible thing. And watching your daughter go through this. And those were only some of the things that she had to battle through this autoimmune issue in her life. But he said something interesting to her when she was young, and I think she was only like about 10 or 12 years old at the time. And he looked at her and said, this is going to be rough, but here's what you can do to make it worse. Use your illness as an excuse, but you do that at your own peril. 
If you do that a hundred times, you will not be able to tell the difference between suffering that stops you from moving forward and an excuse for not living and you'll be done. I, I want you to re, I want to requote that. You won't be able to tell the difference between suffering that stops you from moving forward and an excuse for not living and you'll be done. Never, never, hmm. never use your illness as an excuse. If you can't do it, you just can't do it, period. And then he goes on to say, and he was walking through the rest of the story, he says, are you going to be competent or are you going to be safe? There is nothing safer, however, than competence. And competence comes from looking at what you're facing as something that is trying to hold you back from what you can be. And I really think that is a powerful statement about facing suffering. So rather than, and I can show you this in scripture, but I thought that really kind of characterized someone who is dealing with horrific, extreme situation. And how do we take it in life? And actually his daughter's older now, has beaten a lot of this stuff and is competent, is, is confident, is mature, has faced life, has done things that are extremely hard. And that gave her more confidence and more boldness to keep moving forward. So the question is, are we going to look at the suffering that we're dealing with, or are we going to look at, this is my life, this is what I'm facing, here's what I'm going to do to get to the other side of it, and start charting our, our hope to the other side of it. And the moment we start looking at it that way, hope comes. And this is just naturally speaking. How much more if we understood a spiritual connection to all this and what's going on behind the scenes uh, outside of the natural world that we don't see? And I think this becomes very important. So back to my original thing I was saying about my friend and my conversation, he basically was dressing of, well, we can just overcome everything. We don't need the suffering. And then the other side is life is just suffering and God's just sovereignly doing whatever. And somehow he's making me more glorious. And there's something good that's going to come out of this. There's nothing good that will come out of it unless we change our position of how we address it. That's where we overcome. And that's how we become overcomers. But it doesn't deny the fact that there is something usually in every person's life that has to be faced has to be dealt with, and is usually out of our control. So what what's the difference between that kind of a message? Because, man, that, look at what his daughter had to overcome, suffer through, but what he had to do as well as the father, having to watch your daughter go through that and not lose hope. And you and I have talked about this thing that hope is not some, some dream or some wish. It's a confident expectation that something is coming through or something will come to pass. So what makes the difference between that kind of approach versus someone who makes that a cliche of, well, yeah, it's easy to say that, but you know, I've got real problems that actually prevent me from doing things. And all of this talk about, um, you know, looking on the bright side or getting through things, being more confident, that's all nice cliches, but it doesn't, those are just words, and unless something actually changes around me, then then things can't improve. What makes the difference in that kind of a mindset? Maybe it's maybe it has to do with 
the input and what we've observed as what's normal and what's not normal. The reason I say that is I, I just that first statement that God says to Adam and Eve after they eat from the tree and they're feeling inferior and they feel broken. And God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were missing something? Did you eat from the fruit? And I thought that was interesting is that they knew it because something told them whether it was from the guilt, whether it was from the shame, whether it was from the serpent, what, what, whatever, something told them that they were naked. Like they had a new consciousness of what, of all their incompleteness. Think of the things we look at as luxuries of life that we can't live without. So, so there's things in life that are actually luxuries that we become so adapted to that we can't live without. Like if the internet goes down for a week, we would all be devastated. Like how much suffering can we experience, right? Now we would laugh about it and say, that's not real suffering. But if you think about how much your life depends on that now, it would feel like suffering. And so life, sometimes we've, we've built things around us that we can't let go of anymore. So the removal of that is suffering. But I think in context of all of this, I might be sidetracking a little bit. I think in context of all of this, we should really address what really is true suffering and what what is it after? Yeah. And let's go down that journey. So that does seem like a bit of a strange question, maybe for some people when we ask, what is the suffering after? But if you if you look at, if you ask that question, I think it opens up a better perspective of what you're going through and the world around you. Because without that, we're usually left with, yes, the world is suffering. There's always death and fear and destruction all around us. And that's just, it's like a state of being in our minds. It's its a, a status or a default way of existence that you can't escape. And so you just have to kind of deal with it. But if it's actually after something, that means that there is a goal, that there's something in you or about you that is, it's trying to alter or trying to change or trying to, trying to downplay to prevent you from becoming something or living out what you are. And so then you actually see there's a value in you, isn't there? Because if there's, if the suffering is after something in you or about you, that means that there is something of value that is designed to be released, that's designed to be out there. So does that, does that change the game a little bit? Or is it just kind of like another excuse to to, to have a nice motivational quote to put up there. Or does it change it that we just almost start discrediting, maybe we discredit God. So just this week, there's the lead singer from the group, Hawk Nelson. And he came out and said, I am no longer going to sing Christian music and that he doesn't believe in God. And he made this statement. There was things that just didn't make sense to me, he wrote. If God is all loving and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? Can he not do anything about it? Does he choose not to? Is the evil in the world a result of his desire to give us free will? Okay, then. Then what about famine, disease, floods, and all the suffering that isn't caused by humans and our free will? If God is loving, why does he send people to hell? This is taking the suffering idea and making it the center point, and then what do we do? What is this? What is this man doing? I don't know his heart. I'm just going by his statements of what he's making. My first thought was, what religious belief are you connecting those two things to? 
because I don't I don't share those thoughts. I I wouldn't have come to those conclusions. Um, but that has to do with some things I've learned to understand and grow in, and am still growing in and still learning. But I think it's very interesting that the moment he couldn't answer those questions, then God must not exist. But it still doesn't take away all those problems. It still doesn't take away all those suffering issues. It's just now you're looking for a new answer to deal with them. And for some reason, God couldn't answer those questions. So rather than just taking a look at it, God became the blame. In other words, God actually can't exist. Because if God existed, this couldn't be here. Or he can exist, but he's either so unknowable or has suspect motives that I can't trust him anymore. And isn't that ultimately, I I would say his statement is the logical conclusion of what you have to come to if you read the story of Job as it's traditionally been taught, or it's taught in, in the vast majority of churches. That needs to be, that's the logical conclusion of it, because we see Job in this situation, there's all this pain and suffering in his life, and the way it's normally been taught, or the way it's kind of been in my mind growing up, is that that was part of the plan. God wanted all that suffering there to either teach him something, or to bring glory to his name, or, or you know, fill in your blank with some other examples and answers of it. So if that's the only mindset and perspective, that's a logical conclusion. But maybe there's something deeper, which I guess is a good segue into us talking about Job tonight, because as you and I have talked about for a long time, there's some things that we missed in the story of Job, not to try to build some brand new theology around the book of Job or the life of Job, but there's just things that we've missed in his story where if you if you see what's what's going on, I mean, we have we have 2020 vision you know, I guess pun not intended there, but we've seen his whole story. We've had theologies built around it, but what must it have felt like for him to be in that moment, knowing what he knew and not knowing what he didn't know? So let's look at his story from that lens, maybe, and maybe we'll see a bit of a different idea. You know, it's interesting is we're, we are talking about, we're trying to get into heroes and the need for heroes and our modern day look and the more we try to skim over Job in these podcasts, we it, you're going to have to go back and deal with it because this story is actually uh, uh, archaeologically the oldest story in the Bible. It, it's the oldest book written, and actually you could find it in a lot of religions have, have absolutely adopted. So you can find it in Judaism, you can find it in Christianity, and you can also find it in Islam. It, it has transcended all of those those groups, this book on suffering. And it becomes such a um, pivotal point. But in order to get to the heroic side, we're going to have to take a, a, a look at this where we're not looking for an excuse not to believe. And and quite honestly, and again, I didn't hear, this is just his quote that he, I was talking about the, the lead singer from Hawk Nelson. That's just his quote. So to say, I understand everything he was saying, but just based on the quote, I've heard that statement so many times when people want to check out from Christianity and then they start looking for something else or they start mm. uh, finding ways to uh, have a different way of coping in life. It's almost like we found an excuse to blame God. And I, I think that this whole idea of 
I'm going to make some somebody mad out there, but this whole idea of the sovereignty of God, well, God's just sovereign. Sovereignty is not in the sense of one puppet master making everything happen. There is a power, there is a kingdom, there is a way, there is a leader, there is a sovereignty. But when the laws are put out and the rules are put out, a sovereign nation doesn't just go and change their mind and make different rules based on what's going on. They have to execute those processes of the sovereignty. So when God is sovereign, he sovereignly created everything. He sovereignly puts power together. He sovereignly created gravity. He sovereignly put dynamics and physics and things into order. He doesn't just randomly change it and when he wants to. So if you jump out of an airplane right now and you're at 10,000 feet with no parachute, you'll probably reach a max speed of 200 some miles per hour and then you're going to die. Most likely when you hit the ground. So that's just gravity. So he doesn't change his mind on what gravity does. Now he might teach you how to use a parachute and you know, he might learn how the aerodynamics of a plane and use thrust and aerodynamics to override gravity. And you'll learn different dynamics of how to work with it. But you would say gravity isn't going to change. So his sovereignty, he doesn't change. He doesn't change his word. He doesn't change what he put out. So in that context that he's sovereign. So I'm, I'm only throwing that out there because there's so much when things are going on. We like to divert to the excuse situation where I'm not responsible for everything. God is fully responsible for everything. And I don't think that's always, that is really an inaccurate way of, of looking at things because now we're going back to, I'm going to blame God when something goes wrong or God's not showing up or I'm just going to become apathetic and not feel anymore where God's just in control. He knows what he's doing. I can't tell you how many people have told me that, but then they go and do all these things in their life trying to solve their problems, and then they'll keep saying, well, God's in control. Well, then why do you keep trying to be in control? So deep down, we don't really believe that. We try exactly. to be responsible and take some kind of action, but we it's so much easier to, to fall into a victim state than to look at things the way they are. So that brings us back to Job. And how did he look at this? And was he a victim of something what was the suffering after? And I want to do this in a manner with not trying to bring in all of the theology and all of the cliches. I just want to look at the story more from start to finish in the next 20 minutes. Plenty of time to go over the entire life of Job. So when I look at the life of Job, there's something that I realized a couple of years ago that, that just it changed the entire dynamics of the story for me. At the very beginning, when when the enemy, when Satan the devil is coming before God, and we see this, this interchange of, have you considered my servant Job? And this is kind of how we see everything starting out. Um, I started to see that in a different light when I when I did a bit of study into it. When you look at the the original Hebrew, it doesn't say, have you considered my servant? It literally says, do you have your heart set on Job? Or... I'm noticing that you have your heart set on Job. And doesn't that change the dynamics of this entire thing? We talked about motive and what is suffering after. It makes all the difference in the world when you know what it's after. This wasn't this wasn't like a a contest of, well, I bet I can hurt him, or I bet you can't stop me from doing this, or whatever we try to make it. 
It's that the enemy had his heart set on Job. He saw what Job was, what the relationship, you know, limited as it was, because we're talking old covenant here and all that. He saw that and he wanted it. So that to me just just starts this entire story off on a different light. So now I see when things are happening and Job is questioning what's going on and his friends are all around him and saying, well, you should do this. You shouldn't have done that. And his wife comes to him and says, you should just curse God and die. Because we know the motives of what's going on here, we can see things in a much different light. Absolutely. And when you can see that there is some, there is something else that is after him. And it's interesting that Satan is known as the accuser. He's known as the dragon. And it's very interesting that even in this story, and not to digress a little bit, but when we talk about dragons, throughout history, there's always been a dragon. In China, the dragon is pretty much the god of the water. So typhoons, rivers, water, um, all the, the good and the destructive forces of water is the Chinese dragon. And so I thought that's kind of interesting that even in that culture, the dragon is responsible for the natural elements that affect humanity. Um, hmm. Just a little side sidebar. And yet we call them acts of God. Apparently it's in China, it's the acts of the dragon. Um, and then you have in more uh, Greek mythology and the different religions, you have the dragon that is hiding something. Like it's not just there oppressing, it's trying to keep you from a treasure it's holding, it's hoarding. It's stolen a treasure, and usually kind of there's that metaphor with gold. It's stolen the gold, and the pursuit, or it's stolen, it's stolen the the damsel that's in distress, or it's taken the the something, it stirs the heart of a knight, or it stirs the heart of a king to go after the dragon because there's a treasure on the other side of the dragon. That's what the motivation is to go face the dragon. So in an essence, it's that deep motivation from, from those stories to go and get back what's been stolen, what's been robbed, what's been hidden. That is suffering. Otherwise, you're just subjected. And basically what you'll do is when you're just subjected for a long period of time, you'll just shut down all of your emotions of feeling anyway. So in essence, you're suffering, but you no longer feel it anymore because it's just the way it is. And you've subjected yourself to a dark way of life until you see a sense of light. When you see the light, it stirs something again for you to desire something more, desire out of it, or desire something on the other side. And guess what emerges again? Suffering. So I do find it interesting that there is this force that is after you, and when that force or or that uh, enemy, as we can see in Job, desires you, it's going to do things to try to strip you from the position you have or the relationship that you really want or the thing that you've been created for. It wants to stop that. So would you say that's more of Job's connection and relationship to God that that is being that the suffering is coming after in this case? Because I mean, from the way that I've heard this taught the majority of my life, and I'm sure most people listening are the same way, it's there's there's not really an end goal from Job's perspective. From Job's perspective, it's life was good, 
terrible things happened to me because God did them to me. And then at the end, God speaks to me and things are restored. So it doesn't seem the way it's been taught. Like there's like there's a journey in his mind. He's just kind of he's just kind of sitting there. He's like a pawn in the chess game between God and the devil at this point. Yeah, and then now you add in all of his friends. So he has all this loss. He loses his family. He loses everything that he has. And isn't that the thing that the the dragon or Satan or Lucifer comes to uh, God and says, if you take this away from him, he won't serve you. The only reason he serves you is because you give him these things. And then God says, well, it's in your hand. In other words, it's already in your hand. But the reason mm -hmm. God's a just judge. So rather than getting into that of who did what, did God allow this to happen? Yeah, he put man on this earth with a free will, free choice. They surrendered it. You have an enemy that was given power over the earth, over the prince and the, the power of the air. You, you have this force that now can come and bring accusation towards God's children because they're living in a fallen state. And he could find ways to bring accusation. So as a just judge, I see it almost more like the judge saying, all right, the prosecutor has a case. I don't like it. I don't like what he's doing but my man will stand. So however you want to take that, I'm not here to try to persuade you one way or the other. I just want you to know there is another force that desired, desired Job. God did not go find Lucifer and say, hey, I got a guy that will take you on. Try doing this to him. Right. It wasn't a game that direction. It was Lucifer coming to God and saying, basically, I desire him. And therefore, this event starts taking place. But his friends didn't make it better. Because now you go and read all these chapters after all this happens, and his friends compound it. Everything they're doing is making Job feel less, feel less, feel less, feel less. It makes you wonder, did he suffer more from what happened to him or suffering from the conversation with his friends? Think about that for a minute. I mean, he's all that he's going through... And then to have his friends, his buddies around him, essentially pointing the finger at him and saying, well, you're here and it's your own fault. You put yourself in this position, you big stupid idiot, you should have done things better. I mean, how many times have we been having a bad day and someone comes up to us and just says, well, you know, you probably woke up on the wrong side of the bed or, you know, you, you skipped breakfast, so that's why you're in a bad mood. And all those things are so helpful, aren't they? All those things where it's pointing out how you could have done something better to make the world around you better. That's so encouraging in the moment. It's not. You want to slap the person in the face. And then Job's got three of these people around him besides his wife that's telling him to just curse God and die. So it's not that he's just sitting there and he he's not bringing them over as in, in this idea of, you know what? I need some encouragement and comfort and my friends will do it. They kind of show up and they're like, hey, we're here to tell you what's up, buddy. Isn't that when we get the most amazing friends? I mean, with friends, the saying, with friends like that, who needs enemies, right? And so I would think that he's more suffering from the opinions and perspectives they're trying to put on him. 
because he's been dealing with everything else. He's been going through everything else. But it, there's, there's, there's just a different psychological level when all of those opinions and all of those words come in that are just trying to push you down even lower and lower than your circumstances are already trying to do. Says they came to comfort him. They are the worst comforters ever. But think about this. How many people have come to comfort us in a situation that we're in that basically either victimizes us or basically creates it for how bad we are? And this is just your lot in life. And the comfort is not comfort. It's actually fueling your inability, your weakness, your, your all the things that's wrong with you and making you almost more hopeless. Like their comfort is almost removing hope. Yeah. They're just soothing a salve over the top of you that isn't healing. It's just hiding it. I find it interesting too, his wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Do you still hold fast to the things that you've said were true about God? Curse him and die. So what is she saying? Blame him. It's his fault. This God that you've served, this God that you said that you believed in, just curse him and die. Because why go on with life? Now just ponder that for a moment. Talk about comfort. Sometimes... I mean, in a way, this is the abandonment that we see. Well, if God was so loving, we wouldn't see all this stuff in our world. If God was so loving, these things wouldn't be taking place. Well, God's just sovereignly doing this. In a way, we're saying, just just die. Just What are we holding on to? Something's, something's wrong in that. And I think in everybody's heart, they know it, but they don't know where to articulate it. And they don't know where to put those ideas. Let me say this, though. Isn't it interesting that if you look at it from her perspective, he's going through such terrible things that it would be better for him in every other perspective for him to just be dead. We would call that mercy, putting someone out of their misery, because with that perspective, it would be better for him to just die. Would you rather have a lifetime of what he's going through in that moment? Or, you know what, just let it end put him out of his misery because the suffering that's going on is so much worse than any hope or joy or benefit that life could possibly offer. And how many times do we see that? Isn't that really what's behind the idea of, I can't believe in God anymore. There's too much suffering because there's so much bad. There's nothing that could possibly not even just be worth the suffering, but there's nothing to fight for. There's nothing to live for because of all the awful things that I see. Isn't that really at the heart of what we even see today? Absolutely. And I understand where people can get there. Yeah. I, I don't want people to interpret yeah. that if you're feeling that way, there's a finger pointing at you. I get it. But I, I, I think it's important that we see this journey with Job, because I really see him as a hero. I don't look him as look at him as the guy that just suffered, as a way to justify what God does to people to teach them how to be stronger. By the way, any choice Job made in this, if he were to go and agree with his friends, or if he would have agreed with his wife, he would have lost. Yep. So he had to actually battle this out differently with a different perspective, with limited knowledge. And he just held on to the limits that he did have. But I do find it interesting in, in the third chapter, he says, the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. And what I dreaded has happened to me. 
And what it exposes is all the sacrifices he did to protect his kids, all the things that he did, all of the actions that he took, everything he did for God was to prevent this fear and dread from happening to him. In other words, these were on his mind during the time that he was serving God because he did not want this stuff to happen to him. Now, I'm not saying that's a right or wrong motive, but it, it, it does reveal this motive that he served out of fear of things happening to him. But even when they did, and I think that's where Lucifer thought he could get Job, is, ah, he's only doing this because he wants to protect this. But if you take that away, and, and God says, first of all, I can't take it away. It's in your hand to take it away. So he does. But we find Job doesn't change his internal integrity. Something emerges in him that holds him more steady. And that, that happens even as he doesn't have the whole picture. You know, it's so interesting to me that he doesn't see everything that's going on behind the scenes. In fact, at the end, not to, not to jump ahead too much, but at the end, God kind of confirms that, like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. To Job and to his friends, you guys don't know what you're talking about. But on that same note, throughout that conversation and the journey, Job isn't letting go of his integrity. He's holding on to it, even though it's not perfect, which seems kind of a strange thing. We we have this idea that, you know, if he's the hero of a story, he's got to have the, the perfect perspective. He's got to know everything that's going on. He's got to handle everything the right way. And he does to the best of his ability. He doesn't give in to the voices that tell him to, to change his identity, to give up his allegiance to God, to give up his, his purpose and his meaning. He doesn't listen to all those things. And that's ultimately, I think, what, what makes him such a heroic figure, is with all these pressures around him, all this suffering around him trying to beat him down, he doesn't give it up. And I think something's revealed in all of this, too, is he's not giving it up because there's a different kind of anchor, anchor inside of him. Deeply, he yeah. wants to know God. He doesn't want to just know about him. Like his, his friend Eliehu comes to him in all of Eliehu's brilliance. He says, remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on it from afar. Behold, God is great and we do not know him. In other words, everything they're talking about is something that's way out there, but we can't relate. He is great. He is the creator. He is the all-powerful. He is righteous. But we can't know him. Man can't talk to him. Man, he'll be swallowed up if he even opens his mouth to him. In other words, if you see what's really going on in the friends, in their, in their ignorance and in their twistedness, they're trying to prevent Job from having what he desires the most, is to know God. And if you could start seeing that thread, so what is the thing that the dragon wanted to stop Job from seeing and having? The ability to know God. The ability to experience him. The ability for that relationship. Because at this point, he only knew him from the works. He only knew him from afar, but he wanted to know him. Now when everything was taken away, he still wrestled through all this stuff, but he wanted to know God. And his friends would discourage him from that because they said, you're not qualified, you're not righteous, you're not any of those things. And he, he would say, I am. I've not done these things. Oh, you're prideful, you're arrogant, you're blah, blah, blah. How is that any different than the conversation so many of us have today, where there's suffering in the world 
and there's this question of, I want to know God, I what's going on? And the response from so many people is, well, you can't know God. He's sovereign in all his ways. His ways are higher than ours. We can't possibly know what he's doing or why he's doing it. We just know that it's his fault or that it's his credit and he's the one making everything going on. So, you know, at the end of the day, you just got to accept that. You just got to stop trying to know God so much because you can't. And we put up all these barriers as excuses projecting from our own insecurity because, well, I don't have the answer either, so I might as well just pass the buck off to God and say, it's unknowable. But man, that's a tough thing to do because in that moment, what what you're desiring is that relationship, that knowing of God and who he is, but it feels like it's not there in the moment. You know, when God finally appears to Job in uh, Job 38, he, he appears in a whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer. In other words, stand up straight, get off of your face, put your shoulders back, look me in the eye, and now let's have a conversation. That sounds very authoritarian in the sense of how God's approaching him, but I want you to know what he's doing to Job. You are a man. Now stand up and approach me and be confident and let's have this conversation. Because you, if as long as you keep this inferior status with your head down and you won't face the truth and you won't face those things, you can never get to know and step into that other side. And I, I love that about when God, God does that to him. And even though it's a hard conversation, but I don't see it as this, gruff. I see it as God coming and saying, I'm going to answer you, but you got to look me in the face. Stand up like a man. And then he goes on to say, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you in understanding how I measured it? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it to where was it the foundations fastened? Who is it that laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut up the sea with the doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? And he goes on to walk through all of his creation. Because even though Job had a heart to know God, the words that he uttered were still limited to things he knew about God. It's almost like when you meet someone and they're starting to tell you about this new experience with God and all they can do is quote books to you. Hey, I read this in this book about, and then I read this in this book about, and then I read this in this book about, and then I read this in this book about, and then I'm trying to find God, and I, I couldn't hear his voice, so I bought this book about hearing, and, and at no point have they actually sat down and, and read what the Bible actually said. They've We've learned so much about the Bible and about his words, but the moment we say, I'm reading it, and this is what he was speaking to me, how many times do we have that friend, well, you're misunderstanding what he's saying. That's not really what he's saying. Right. Instead of, that's amazing. How do we go deeper with that? How do we how do we gain more understanding with that? And I'm for books. I'm for other people's writings. I'm for listening to other things. But I listen to gain perspective of their relationship, but I'm not going to guide my relationship based on those things. And so that's a very big difference. Uh, different differentiation that I wanted to make there. You know, I think we've even done that with the Bible itself a lot of times, and not to downplay the significance or the holiness or the sacredness of the Bible. Obviously, that's not what I'm trying to do. 
But at the end of the day, it's designed to bring you into that relationship with the father. The relationship being the centerpiece and the core and the goal of it all, not the the knowledge or the memorization of the words in the book that bring you to the relationship. And there's a big difference there. I mean, I can write my wife all the letters about me in the world, and she can have a great understanding of who I am by reading that, and it could probably help her too, and vice versa. But the marriage isn't built on the letters we write to each other. It's built on the relationship and the intimacy there. And I think that's one of the things we see in, in Job is all the all this information from a perspective of who God is based on what they knew at the time. But as he said, I, I didn't know you before, but now, now I see a bit more clearly. So even ponder this, like even you're bringing up like, yeah, your letters, the your wife necessarily can't know you by your letters, but when she knows you and then you speak and let's say you write her a poem or you sing her a song or you write her a letter those words now mean yes. something even if you can't yep. be present because a relationship is built prior to those words but if you just hear the words but don't know the author behind the words you don't have anything but just those words you'll question is that to me is he talking to me is he talking to someone else? What's really going on? And so that relationship is critical to understanding the words. But once you have the relationship, the words can actually carry the weight of the rest of the relationship. And I think you see that if you have a long distance relationship, and even if it's in the early stages and you're writing letters back and forth to each other, you cherish those letters. I mean, you'll you'll put them under your pillow. You'll read them over and over again. You might you might smell the pages to you know to try to get a scent of the person. But ultimately, what the attachment and the longing is for is the person, not for the piece of paper or the words. Now you're gonna you're gonna save the papers. You'll put the letters in a nice treasure chest and have it'll be great memories and you'll look back on it from time to time. But even when you're reading them, they're designed to emotionally connect you to the one that's writing it. But sometimes I feel like we've had we've had this long-term relationship with a book and we've kind of forgotten the person that wrote it. Oh, that's so true. I you know, again, in in chapter 40, after God begins explaining, were you there? Were you there? Were you there? And he starts laying out all these marvelous things that were done. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice I will I will proceed no further. And I, I, I like this. So now he's getting into that self-pity of, oh my gosh, am I just a nothing in comparison to what you are, right? This, this humility takes place. But I want you to see how God wanted Job to deal with the humility. In the next verse, he says, now prepare yourself like a man. And I will question you and you will answer. In other words, he's, it's almost like this father figure telling Job, listen, your world just had a major calamity and a lot's going on, but I need you to understand some things because I want you to know me and I know you. Don't drop your head. Look at me. I'm going to talk to you and you will answer me. You're, you're going to communicate. You're going to face this dragon once and for all, all these fears, all these emotions, all of this worthlessness, all of this stuff that's coming out right now, I am not going to let that control you. You're going to stand back up like a man, put your shoulders back, 
lift your head up, look me in the face, and now you're going to answer me. You don't get to let your all your emotions take over again. And so he's dealing with him. And then he goes on again. And he, and he, he lists all these things that he did. And then Job answers in, verse, in chapter 42, verse 1. He said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. And I think this is powerful. There was a purpose that God called Job a righteous man before any of this ever happened. God loved Job, and Satan knew it. And so he's trying to get Job to betray God. And when he said, nothing can stop your purpose. In other words, what you have been created for what you have been designed for and the relationship I want to have with you is not going to be stopped by things you experience. And I am not going to let the dragon dominate and have the final say. I think that's a real powerful truth that needs to be pulled out of that. But that's a little side note. I think that, well, I think that, I think that answers the question of what is the suffering after? both as a principle for all of us, but all in this story. That's what it was after. It wasn't after his houses. It wasn't after his livestock or even his his physical health. It was after that relationship. That he desired. That's what the suffering, was, what after. The suffering was after. And if we could see that, second, I mean, the, the first point we have to remember is God did not author this suffering for Job. God did not right. solicit the suffering for Job. The suffering came because Job's heart desired God. Now his actions was minimal and his understanding was minimal, so he operated in what he knew, but he wanted to know God. That's what it came after. So we could say, well, yeah, but Brian, a lot of people aren't wanting to know God and they're suffering. There's always going to be suffering because every human was designed to be connected to God. So if I can get you lost in that world, you'll never want to connect. It's not God not wanting to connect with you. The suffering and the problems and the struggles and the, the world that through a fallen state is in a constant place to keep you from stepping into that position, to stepping into that mm -hmm. role. That's what it's after. That's why, as you quoted last week, the whole earth groans and travails for the revealings of the sons of God. That's what it's waiting for to come back. So even creation doesn't want this. It wants it to go back to normal. We see this in, in so many stories. I talked about this on, on Sunday because I got the chance to speak at our church. When you look at the Jungle Book from the 60s, the cartoon, and there's there's a whole lot we could say about the meaning in the story. And if you can just look at it beyond a a childish entertainment thing. There are some deep principles about the journey that someone goes through in that. But what the, what the tiger was after, the reason he wanted to kill Mowgli, the boy, it wasn't because of what he was. It's because of what he could have become. Even though Mowgli at the time didn't want to become that. He didn't want to grow up to become a man. He didn't want to use fire and guns. He didn't want any of that. But he was designed for that. His 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 DNA was towards that. That was his destiny, you could say, was to become that and to walk in that. And because he was that, the enemy had to kill him. 
It had to kill him because it feared him too much, even though he wasn't actively going for the specifics of that. And that's so profound to me, where, where even if you're not actively pursuing God, the enemy still sees you as a threat because of what you're designed to be. Oh, that is so true. And then when someone embraces the idea like his Job's wonderful friends, they actually become the perpetrators of more suffering. They actually start creating more suffering. And there's almost this, uh, there's that, there's the suffering like famines, all those things that, that go on in creation. Then there's the suffering that comes from the malice that, and the envy that burns inside of men. The moment you start, I mean, you think about it, his friends were attacking him when he said, no, I'm righteous. I'm, I'm, I'm in a good standing. No, you're not. Like now you see the envy of that suffering. And then you get a perpetual state of people that have lived under the suffering or the quote unquote, they've adopted into the belief that they are victims of all this. Then they become angry and spiteful towards someone who wants to rise out of it. And they create their own sense of, of hell on earth towards other people. And the cycle just perpetuates. I find this interesting with Job, though, in, in uh, this would be in Job 42, verse 3. He, God goes and does a whole other explanation of who he is. And I like what God's doing with Job. He wants Job to see this. Don't tuck your head. Don't embrace the pity. Just face this pain right now of, of the fear of dealing with me, and I want to bring you into another place. And Job caught it. He said, you asked, Job is saying to God, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. Now Job is asking God, let me speak. There's this confidence emerging in this relationship with God. This is really powerful. You really have to see this because this is that hero's journey. He's finally facing what he is to the one he wants to know and the treasure that he's trying to seek after and who he is to the suffering that's around him. And he said, you said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. In other words, what I was, not who he is inside, but what he was, his thinking, his perspective, everything that he had allowed that world to press on him, all the fears, all of that, I abhor all that. And I change my way of thinking, because that's what the word repent means. That's a really a powerful statement. That in all of this, what the enemy was trying to do is to keep him down, keep him from doing, God was coming, lift up your head, lift up your head, stand up like a man, come to me. And it was like he was bringing him back in. Isn't that key in a, in a hero's journey too? I mean, the suffering is designed to keep your head down. It's designed to beat you down like this whack-a-mole game where anytime you, you lift your head up, it'll smack you back down. But a father walks alongside you and says, nope, keep your chin up, keep your head up, let's go. It's, there's something so much more empowering about that versus someone saying, you know what, just just, just keep your head down and push through. Because that's, that's the advice we get from people. I remember a coworker of mine a few years ago, 
he was just really ambitious, wanting to wanting to learn more skills. He was he was trying to advance in the company. He was looking for positions, and our boss at the time told him, "You know what? Just keep your head down and keep plugging away." And that did more to demoralize him and demotivate him than anything I've ever seen, because he wanted to keep fighting, even though he had things to learn. He he had this ambition. He wanted to grow. He wanted to keep going further, but there was this voice over him that said. Nope, you're you're too you're too small. You just need to keep plugging away at this menial stuff and then maybe someday something will happen for you. And I think at times that's kind of what we've made God. Nope, just keep your head down, keep serving, keep plugging away. And serving is good. Doing things for our communities and our churches is good. But if that's all you have, then you don't have a father guiding you on a journey. You barely have someone up the chain in the military issuing you orders. It's barely even that relationship. And so it's so cool to me to see that shift in Job when he gets a, a deeper understanding of the relationship and he changes his way of thinking. Yeah, his eyes is open. He, he can see. And, you know, it's interesting. In verse 7, it says, And it was after that God had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So he told them to go take for themselves seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up yourself a burnt offering. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Job didn't have to offer any more sacrifices. His friends did. But they still didn't know him. They knew about him. And so, so Job is now standing as the, he became the mediator between God and his friends. So I want you to ponder that even on forgiveness. God wasn't just doing something for his friends, but he was healing Job's heart from having the bitterness towards his friends for all that was said and all the wrong teaching and all the wrong ideas. He didn't want Job to carry any of that stuff. So the whole idea that Job is the one that's mediating mediating the forgiveness of his friends is really a powerful statement because when you come out of things and you overcome and you face it and you're heroic, the hero doesn't turn on all of those that bothered him. He looks at him as someone who also needs their understanding cleared. Really a powerful statement there. And not many would come out of something like that and say, yeah, let me let me have you redeemed as well. No, it would be, okay, now you're going to go suffer what I just suffered. Malice was broken in Job's heart at that point. I think it's just a really a powerful, a powerful idea that needs to be seen because a hero, once they emerge, doesn't use his heroics to, to reap revenge on what was done to him. He stands free. And then other people are freed because of his heroics. Really a powerful truth when we look at heroes. And so one thing that's very interesting, and we mentioned it on the last podcast, is how God restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. In other words, when Job let go of everything, all the fears, he let go of the bitterness, he let go of any potential wrath he could have, all he was free. And when he became free in his relationship, interesting, all of the things that were taken were restored to such 
a magnificent degree, that he lived greater in 140 years of his life, seeing four generations of his children and amazing things, but no longer did he live in fear. No longer do you hear him talking about the sacrifices. No longer does he do anything because he knew God. And I think the story of the hero is when you finally discover who you are because you finally meet the one who you desire to know and you stand up like a man or a woman for you ladies. The metaphor still applies. Well, we're going to wrap it up for this one. Um, Again, if you guys missed the last two episodes, we've been building on this conversation of suffering and there's so much to say about it. There's so many questions that come up with it, especially these days, but uh, we appreciate you guys listening in. If you have questions or comments on these things, stuff that you've been pondering, stuff that stands out to you as you read through these stories, let us know. We love hearing from you guys on that. Until next time, just know we appreciate you. Continue on the journey and stay in the fight.